Good evening. And welcome to the first lecture of the 1985 Columbia University School of Library Service Rare Book School. First, I'd like to sell some things. As usual, we have Rare Book School t-shirts, not only last year's model, which I'm wearing, unfailing generous support that we've always had in the past from people willing to buy our foolish things because they make us money. There will be another lecture this week on Wednesday. Mr. Scheide from Princeton will be speaking about his own collections and there are plenty of copies of the schedule for the remaining lectures of the summer uh, in the lounge where the reception to be held immediately after this lecture uh, that isn't going to work, is it? Uh, they're in the lounge where the reception will be held immediately after this lecture. There are also, incidentally, various other handouts there, uh, some of which Rare Book School students may not yet have picked up, uh, including the guide to restaurants in the neighborhood. So you may want to grab a copy of that as well. Otherwise, it remains only for me to welcome a familiar face to a great many of you, Stephen Corey from the Special Collections Department of the Gleason Library of the University of San Francisco, and it's a great pleasure to have him here. Thank you very much. I always enjoy being uh, described as head of Special Collections because I'm also the foot. I am Special Collections at the University. I'm very pleased to be here at the kind invitation of Terry Bellinger uh, to present the first of your Rare Book School evening lectures. Those of you currently enrolled have had an exciting first day of classes, and I don't know how much more excitement you can stand tonight. So I hope uh, to make my talk palatable with the sauce of brevity and to prop up flagging attention spans with the use of visual aids. 
The world of fine printing is large and complex, even though that might not be widely perceived. Fine printing, they would say when I mentioned I was working on this talk, why, you can do that standing on your head, or that should be easy for you. And at least in the San Francisco Bay Area, it is known that one of the Gleason Library's collecting strengths is fine printing. Yet I believe that there is implicit in such remarks the notion that, well, there really is not much to talk about, is there? If special collections are regarded by many outsiders with something like bemused interest as quaintly arcane, one of the main, out, of, out of the mainstream and even ivory towerish, how much more emphatic those views are, even within the rare book trade, when the subject of fine printing is mentioned. One of the chief difficulties is deciding what fine printing is. Most of us have probably wrestled with the distinction between fine printing and private press printing, or fine printing and any other kind of printing. Some fine printing is done by private presses, but not all private press work is fine printing, i.e. the problem of local presses such as in San Francisco, the Rather Press, which is very aptly um, uh, signified by uh, a circle with three hands. And one of the partners is, unfortunately had a stroke and only uses one hand in the printing process. And it shows. But they're a private press and they want to be considered a private press. And so all private press printing is not fine printing. That's one thing you quickly come to realize. Private presses seem to me to be more allied to what we call small presses. That is, presses established to see that chosen texts get into print. The resulting book may, in fact, be of high quality. But usually, the best printing comes from fine presses, presses for which the printing itself is the great thing. It may not be the only consideration, but it is a principal object of the printer, if not the principal object. These distinctions, however, are by no means clear-cut. Another difficulty along these lines is that not all letterpress printing is fine printing by any means. Fond illusions that letterpress printing automatically implies competence and taste are by no means justified. Actually, fine printing can come from almost any printing process. Certainly, there is a percentage of offset work that is well-designed and carefully printed, fine printing, if you will. But for most of us, the notion of fine printing also must include the use of the finest materials available starting with the paper. Working as the Special Collections Librarian at USF for 10 years and building our, our collections of fine printing have provided me with the opportunity of thinking about some of the problems of collecting in this field and to watch the various developments and ramifications of the past decade. I would like to share some of my observations with you. In May of 1931, Mr. Herbert L. Rothschild presented a very elegant keepsake to his fellow members of the Roxburg Club of San Francisco. You notice that said in one pause. It's not to be confused with the Roxburg Club. Mr. Rothschild had the Grabhorn Press reproduce a page from a number of his most valued fine press books, along with commentary on each one by Mr. Rothschild. In his introduction, Mr. Rothschild was very modest in his assessment of the role of fine printing in the world of book collecting. He states that the noble, noble pursuit of book collecting, to be worthwhile, must of necessity be activated by a love not of books as physical objects, but of literature. And the, in the world of literature, he speaks even more highly of association copies, which are to be particularly treasured. But, he says, that given, it is also good to remember that a book, even independent of its content or association value, 
is also a physical object worthy of interest. A thing of beauty, you know, is a joy forever. And so it is, to quote Mr. Rothschild, and so it is that starting in the last decade of the past century, an extraordinary man put new life, spirit, and glory into the art of the book. William Morris is the modern creator of the book, Beautiful. Our contemporaries are echoes of the master. Contemporary bookmaking is a reflection of the mechanistic age in which we are living, but it is a glorious reflection of its best activities. At the most, it is striving to put into permanent being established classics in form and format that is pleasing to the eye, accompanied by drawings and color that tend to help give expression to the text. This is being done with love, with reverence, and with intelligence and scholarship. Such books thus answer a splendid purpose in the scheme of things so dear to the book collector and the book lover, and may I say the special collections librarian. And with this thought in mind, he said, I offer a few examples of modern bookmaking, rather than that of that more splendid thing, the ever-glorious creation of literature. So we have a, a, a major press collector saying, literature is the thing, but please forgive me if I present you a few modest uh, tokens of the fine printing in my collection. And I think it's, it's well to keep that in mind, that fine printing, after all, is only is basically interested in the physical object of the book. It doesn't take into account, generally, uh, literary uh, content qualities. And if that's lost, then uh, we get into the never-never land of art, and I'm going to address that issue. Uh, it's always wise to keep fine printing in a context. If you don't, you can be doomed. More splendid and the more limited uh, the book was in Mr. Rothschild's, uh, that Mr. Rothschild could find, the more he admired them. Many of his books uh, in the book that he had reproduced were vellum copies, usually less than 10 copies known. He would have a vellum copy. Even, he even had a unique copy on vellum of the Haggadah printed by the Sonsino Press in 1930 with the original drawings by Albert Rutherston. His own book, A Survey of Modern Bookmaking, an elegant folio printed by the Grabhorn Press, was limited to 70 copies, so he practiced what he preached. To, to a certain extent, fine printing is in the eye of the beholder. For example, although William Morris's Kelmscott Press is credited with the revival of printing, and it is regarded as one of the great presses of all time, many of the actual volumes are not, at least to our eyes, particularly visually appealing. Not fine at all, if you will. But the integrity of the materials, the integrity of his vision, are apparent. The products of his, distinction, uh, of his distinctive vision will always be considered fine printing, whether we agree with the taste or not. To take a more recent example, I have a feeling that some of the books from Walter Hamady's Perishable Press will date badly visually. Even now, one hears the occasional grumble about, quote, the Hamady look, apparent in much of the work of his many students. But isn't the, as in the case of William Morris, Hamady's materials are the best. His use of many different kinds of his own handmade paper and his own distinctive vision, even if not to everyone's taste, surely must always be considered fine printing. Hamady is also a useful example to underscore my point about the focus of fine printing. His texts are interesting, and at least most of them well chosen. The collected sayings of his young daughter, to the contrary, notwithstanding. But it is clear that he has a serious commitment, both as a poet and a hardworking printer, to his texts. These are not reprints of classics, far from it. But in spite of the attention to text, 
Can anyone doubt that the printing for him is the thing? No matter how much attention is devoted to the text, in fine printing, the emphasis is always on the printing, the physical presentation. That is the gulf between small press printers, for instance, and fine printing. But few collections contain only fine printing. It's difficult to segregate it out in the larger realm of books that are printed letterpress and what are generally considered press books. Most institutions also feel an obligation to collect the printers of their own region, regardless of the quality of the printing. Let me tell you something of our own collections. The Richard A. Gleason Library is housed in a building completed in 1950. In 1951, the erstwhile librarian, Father William J. Monahan, bought an important collection of Sir Thomas More en bloc. This was the first special collection at the Gleason Library. Within the Thomas More collection were many examples of fine printing, since Thomas More's Utopia has been printed by many fine presses, including the Kelmscott Press. When the collection was cataloged, these presses were not traced and given separate entries. On the other hand, there was no special collection librarian to worry about the notion of a press file. The first special collections librarian, Florian Shasky, was hired in 1969, and I succeeded him in 1974. In 1974, there were only two collections of fine printing at the Gleason Library, one of which was the Theodore M. Lilienthal collection of the Grabhorn Press, possibly the finest ever formed. An exhibit of this collection marked the opening of the Donahoe Rare Book Room in October of 1972. Our collections mostly covered aspects of 19th and 20th century literature. But Mr. Norman H. Strauss was about to change all that. Mr. Strauss, uh, and a, a recent retiree from New York, he was a president, chief executive officer, and chairman of the board of J. Walter Thompson with a lifetime avocation of collect book collecting, uh, literature collecting, and in his last years was particularly interested in the art and history of the book and formed many, many collections of fine printing. Mr. Strauss had already given us a collection of the uh, printing of the San Francisco printer, Henry Evans, who is now better known for his botanic prints. Mr. Evans had published under the imprint Porpoise Bookshop and printed under the, under the imprint of the Peregrine Press. Mr. Strauss was also at that time in 1974 working on completing our collection of the small San Francisco publishing firm known as the Book Club of California. But Mr. Strauss soon enlarged his scope and ours. He was dispersing his many collections, which centered around the art and history of the book. After a series of meetings and lengthy correspondence with him, two points emerged. One, San Francisco was a center of fine printing, but there was currently no significant collection of fine printing in San Francisco. Two, he proposed that we should do so, we should collect fine printing at the Gleason Library, and that he would make the Gleason Library a chief recipient of his fine press collections if we chose to do so. We did. Over the next decade, he gave us a complete collection of the Allen Press of Marin and many other presses further afield. His unmatched collection of the printing of Victor Hammer of the Stamperia del Santuccio and other imprints, uh, the Overbrook Press of Frank Altschul, who is probably spinning in his grave at the thought of the new Overbrook Press, the charming and very limited editions of the Heimer Creek Press of John Foss, and Norman's collection of the Officina Bodoni. The greatest collection of all, and certainly the largest, was Mr. Strauss's collection of the San Francisco printer John Henry Nash, who arrived in 1895, preceding the Grabhorn Brothers by 25 years. The basis of that collection was a collection formed at the source by John Henry Nash's 
own meticulous compositor, Joseph Fauntleroy, and Mr. Strauss was able to buy that collection en bloc for Moore and Howell. The vision, the willfulness, if you wish, of this one collector led us to a major new field of collecting, fine presses and press books. It would have been difficult to ignore fine printing eventually, since San Francisco is one of the centers of fine printing in the United States, but the development of fine press collections at the Gleason Library would have been quite different without Mr. Strauss. We have gradually become known for our press collections and our interest in fine printing. We have purchased the archive of Clifford Burke's Cranium Press, which operated in San Francisco from 1966 to 1976. The archive of the Five Trees Press of San Francisco, whose mainspring, Kathy Walkup, has been such a dynamic force in the Bay Area and the archive of Roger Levinson's Tamil Pius Press in Berkeley. Mr. Levinson is a superb craftsman whose work is too little known. Other generous donors have followed Mr. Strauss's lead. Mr. William P. Barlow, Jr. helped us acquire his virtually complete collection of the Daniel Press. Mr. Stephen Gale Herrick gave us his complete collection of the Gruganig Press and a good run of the Vale Press. Most recently, Mr. Chauncey D. Leake, Jr. of New York developed a collection of Carol Coleman's Prairie Press, worked with me on an exhibit of the press at the Gleason Library, as this is the 50th anniversary of the press, and when the exhibit ends in July, he will leave the collection with us as a gift in honor of his parents, who were longtime residents of San Francisco. Father Monahan is not wrong in his observation that our holdings are a collection of other collectors' collections. We do not take these gifts lightly. When we accept a press commitment, we, we commit ourselves to the full development of that press. There are surprising additions to be made even to, quote, complete collections. Our primary interest is San Francisco Bay Area fine printing, then California, then United States printing, and finally others, although England is by far the most significant other, as it were. We have no intention of trying to build complete collections of the most famous presses, Kelmscott, Doves, Ashendine. We are content with representative examples most of which have been given to us. Many complete or near-complete collections have been formed, and we already have our hands full. We have neglected many non-Californian presses and are content with representative examples simply because we cannot afford to buy everything being printed today. We also, but we do try to have a few examples of almost every press we come across. By adding to the collection in this way, we put our local printers in better perspective and get a more accurate picture of the history of fine printing. I will show you the slides of some of these forgotten presses later. Perhaps the most perplexing problem at present is the increasing involvement of the art world with the world of the book. A very pleasant young man, a Mr. George Bailey from Tallahassee, Florida, telephoned me recently to say he was in town and that he had made some books he would like to show me. He understood we collected such things. He had heard of me when visiting Sandy Kirschenbaum at Fine Print and when he had talked to Johanna Goldschmidt at the San Francisco Public Library. We set up an appointment and he brought along several of his books, each carefully wrapped and proudly presented. They were long, accordion-pleated pieces, very ingeniously spray-painted in many attractive colors, full of interesting patterns, on the back, too. The cover, and I use the term advisedly, was sprayed with the title X equals X. That, and the phrase, words are not ideas, 
made up the text of the book. There, was a, there were several larger books, equally colorful, each one unique. With pride, he told me how carefully each one was made and how much time each one took. He was finishing up an art degree in Florida. How did I like his books, he said. I hope you can understand some of the conflicting emotions surging in my breast. I said, very nice, but I find it difficult to consider these books. He was surprised and a bit upset. So I pulled out all the old chestnuts, including, for instance, the notion of the multiple duplication of texts, that one-of-a-kind books really is a contradiction in, term, in terms, antithetical to the basic notion of the function of a book. I also suggested that a book without words, or virtually without words, is also a contradiction in terms. He said, what about books of photographs? Aren't those books? I responded that the Codex Forum had been used for many different functions. I asked him a question. I said, why is it important that what you have made should be called a book? He responded with something vague about experimentation with the definition of the book, expanding the horizon of the book. No snarls. Our hour, our hour or so together had left us pretty much at impasse. He subsequently wrote me a letter, and this is part of it, a direct quote from the letter. Have you considered my suggestion to add a few examples of non-traditional books, non-traditional books, to your collection? A small selection of diversified books in juxtaposition to the books in your collection would act to reinforce and more clearly state the importance and intentions of fine press books. I feel books of this nature would function as an excellent educational tool in describing what a book is or what a book could be. I underline that last. A book could be. He mentioned he was going to see Anthony Bliss at Berkeley. I hastened to caution our artist not to expect too much. Tony's notion of a book is one that considers the 18th century as modern first editions. Early editions of the Romant de la Rose are more like it. So off went our Daniel to the lion's den. He came back to tell me somewhat smugly that Tony had raved about his books, had dragged in most of the staff to look at them, and finally had chosen one of the largest ones. What could I do? I finally bought X equals X. <laughs> if only so it could exemplify my quandary. For it is not as though there already weren't some pretty iffy examples of books being produced by recognized printers. The book bound in full shower cap, for one. The one with the text pages laminated and then trimmed into weird shapes with pinking shears. The various recent works housed in various aluminum containers. I think it is not going too far to say that of all the dilemmas currently facing fine press collectors, this is perhaps the most perplexing, the most complex, and the most urgent. Already there are galleries which handle only one-of-a-kind artist books, whatever those are. In fact, I have been informed that artist books are generally one-of-a-kind. That's what it means, and they still use the term book. An edition of any sort is usually then considered a livre d'artiste. We do not collect in either category at the Gleason Library, which is not to say that we do not have any. We just don't go out and collect them. As small press publishers and printers are primarily concerned with text, so livre d'artistes are primary, primarily vehicles for artists, and we are not an art gallery. Our friend, uh, Mr. Bailey, 
uh, is an artist, and he, to me he will always be an artist and not a bookmaker. Uh, even if he is an interesting and certainly a hard-working one, he's still an artist. But he called what he produced books. I asked him in all seriousness because there seemed to be a great gulf there, such a large mystery. I asked him, had I missed something recently? Was there a new dynamic school of thought, a new movement I had not heard about? Had Susan Sontag written yet another seminal essay I had not read, this one on the very relative nature of the thing we call the book? How had this notion suddenly become so prevalent that anything can be a book if that is what you want to call it? The upshot was that I was pretty, pretty clearly a mossy old fossil, hopelessly embedded in the past. I maintain that it is not all that difficult to see when a book is primarily an example of fine printing, no matter how it is illustrated, and when a book is primarily an, a vehicle for an artist, no matter how well the book is printed. We draw the line at the, letter, at the latter at, at USF. As a collection of fine printing, our emphasis is on typography. I would uh, be interested if any of you could think of examples that might put these distinctions to the, t to the test. By and large, I maintain that the distinctions are fairly obvious, which is useful when you must decide several times a week which books do and which books do not fall within your guidelines. The abuse on one's credulity and tolerance is fairly constant. Among the egregious offenders are expensive instant rarities, one of only 20 copies signed by the author or illustrator's left hand. The edition limited to only 17,000 copies. The stream of expensive books illustrated, however competently, by artists who seem never to sleep and who issue their own work suitably embedded in a piece of literature at a rate reproducing rabbits would envy. I put it in this way in a fine print review, to name names, of an odd bestiary produced by the Chalonidae Press. Quote, as charming as the book is, there remains, finally, the consideration of cost. At this rate of lavish production, it seems to me that few collectors or libraries will be able to afford complete collections of the Chalonidae Press. And this, may be become, and this may become a problem, too, with similar operations, such as the Pennyroyal Press. Both operations combine fine printing with art. But are the products examples of fine printing, or are they livre d'artistes? For those library collections concentrating on fine printing, the problem is a difficult one. More libraries may soon be forced to limit their purchases of these increasingly expensive volumes, no matter, th no matter that their expense is obviously commensurate with their lavish expenditure of effort and artistic talent. This problem becomes more urgent the closer it hits home. At the time that review appeared in October of 1983, we had already decided that we would not be able to afford a complete collection of the Chalonidae Press, which is fine, that's an East Coast press. But at the same time, Andrew Hoyam in San Francisco was coming out with his production of John Ashbery's poem, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror, bound, as someone put it, in full hubcap. <laughs> the alternating text pages and engravings are printed on paper discs, 18 inches in di diameter. This assemblage, and I don't call it a book, this assemblage was offered at $2,500. His previous book had been an edition of The Apocalypse, illustrated by Jim Dine, at $1,500. Later in 1984, he would publish The Temple of Flora, another project with Jim Dine, based loosely on Thornton's 18-7 volume. Di Jim Dine interpreted 24 plants, 
quote, although scientific detail was obscured, a very useful book. And the box for the book features a relief sculpture by Jim Dine on the lid, representing Flora's temple gate. The price for this was $2,000. You begin to perceive my problem. We bought the apocalypse, but the next two items were iffy and expensive. We did not feel we could afford to buy either of them, even though it meant our run of Orion Press would be incomplete. I explained to Andy our financial quandary, but suggested that some smart investor might in time like to get a good tax write-off, and we would be pleased to be the institution to receive them at that time. I don't think he took too well to that. Alastair Johnson of the Poltroon Press had a bit of fun with self-portrait in a convex mirror by issuing a spoof prospectus for the book. Mixed company requires that I edit the text a bit, but some of it is as follows. Quote, a novel concept in Lever's D'Artiste's artist books. After the rip-snorting success of the Book of Uncommon Prayer, it was never published, upholstered poetry, um, the deathbed edition of Howell, and the great Goatsby, bound in green-backed Naga goatskin, Orion Press uh, proudly announces a collection of miscellaneous old poems, a printer's pizza. <laughs> Each line set askew, a new vision, an old poem. Features the fetching etchings of Jim Dime. Limited quantities available, so act now to ensure disappointment. Send just two million or make checks payable directly to Transubstantial Realty Company. We have a vision and overhead, second to none. Nota bene. Arrangements are being made with No Point Press to reprint the printer's pizza, but only the Orion edition comes packed in genuine Oldsmobile hubcap. Okay. That is basically the problem at hand. And I uh, was going to um, talk about um, the problem with broadsides, but they basically are the same problem. And since I have 150 slides to show you, I think perhaps I should get into the slides. Uh, we can go through them relatively rapidly. I will, I was going to mention basically, uh, Lee McClellan of the Meadow Press in San Francisco is an artist with four years of art training, but who is a craftsman very interested in the craft of printing. And she is really caught between those two worlds, the world of art and the world of the book. And it, it, it confuses her and, and perplexes her uh, as well. But she says she went into broadsides because they were a way of getting into the art world. And most broadsides being produced today seem to be examples of art rather than examples of typography, although they're sold to libraries as examples of fine printing. And it's a serious problem because they're proliferating like rabbits, as most of you know. Um, and it's very difficult to draw the line. Not only that, they're difficult to store, they're difficult to determine. It's sometimes hard to determine whether or not they're only vehicles for artists or whether they are honestly uh, vehicles for fine printing. I do have a couple to show you. There I don't pretend to know. I don't make uh, hard and fast decisions all the time. Many of these things perplex me. And I'd be interested in hearing some of your reactions when we see the slides. I have uh, four basic groups of slides. Uh, first are older, first really are a few preliminary slides showing a fine print magazine and, and uh, a few miscellaneous uh, other things. Uh, a group of older presses, which I found, find admirable, some of them forgotten, some worth bringing to your attention. Um, some problem presses, I'm, I, had, I have slides of X equals X, 
and the Pinking Shear book and Aluminum book and some others. Some successes in the past 10 years, books that I admire particularly that I think did achieve the balance between text, art, and fine printing. And finally, a, a few books that have uh, come out in the recent past which I think are noteworthy and have uh, excited my interest and admiration enough that I would like to share them with you. Um, this, I just, let's see if I can focus this a little. Better? Is that better? Is that all right? Okay. That I simply show you because in San Francisco we have a number of periodicals uh, looking for um, material to, to write about in, in fine, fine printing as a, as a real interest in San Francisco in general. This is a, a, a widely distributed generalist magazine called Metro Magazine, and they approached us and said, do you have some books that would be appropriate? And this is the way of, of, that we were able to appear in a widely distributed, distributed magazine to get the word out, one, that we have fine printing, and two, to let people know in San Francisco, the general public, know that there is such a thing as a fine printing community. Now that's coming out of focus again. All right. All of you should know fine print if you don't. Um, Yes, uh, all, everybody should subscribe, but I happen to have a couple of order blanks up here. Um, I want you to notice the title, the, the, the secondary title. This is volume 10, number 4. And then we had our, uh, went into our 11th year. Oops, sorry. Uh-oh, I hope this is going to be all right. Do you notice the change? Instead of fine print, a review for the arts of the book, we have now become fine print, the review for the arts of the book. So th th we, we no longer are very modest about it. That's the cover to uh, uh, Harry Duncan's Doors of Perception. Just wanted to show you that beautiful paste paper. Another book uh, of essays on typography, all of which are, are worthy of your attention. And Printer's Choice, a very important and uh, influential book. Uh, the exhibit originally in the Grolier Club and the cover to it. Oops, a head or two, but that's all right. A new um, uh, typographic interest group in San Francisco, the Pacific Center for Book Arts, uh, PCBA as it's generally known. I have some uh, material up here. If any of you are interested in this kind of group, I do have some brochures on them. Just want to show you what's happening in San Francisco at the moment. And the Minnesota for Center for Book Arts. They've uh, already come up with almost a quarter of a million dollars to set up a printing, a fine press and printing center in Minnesota. Uh, we'll be hearing more of them. No. This is a very obscure press. House of Huntington, uh, Tully Francis Huntington of Palo Alto, who printed in the 1920s. His editions were generally limited to 50 copies, so they're extremely rare. But I just wanted to show you the beautiful uh, work he achieved, and it's always a pleasure to come across an undiscovered press like this or an unknown press and find something of first-rate taste and quality. The text is horrible. He wrote it, but my, he was a good printer. 
This is um, a, a close, closer, uh, a press closer to your home. It's the Marion Press. Oops, the Marion Press that started in the 1890s from uh, Jamaica, in, in uh, right here in New York. And I thought that was a very handsome title page. I have a cover here somewhere. That's the cover to the book, Bound in Full Horsehide. And the title page once again. That that's a new press to me. There's a bibliography. Uh, but I thought that was a very interesting, that's certainly a lot better than normal commercial printing of the 1890s, a very interesting uh, uh, press and a rather long-lived one. It printed into the 20s. Another um, San Franciscan who printed uh, at Pittsburgh at the laboratory press, Porter Garnett set up, set up the laboratory press. This is one of three copies of that Endeth Never uh, that was printed on vellum and uh, hand-colored pardon the thumbs. I think I have a close-up. I hope I have a close-up. There you can see the beautiful coloration in that. And this is a wonderful malediction that I, that I can't resist. Rest away from the mercenary wretch who buys or sells or barters this book, his health, body, complexion, strength, and faculties. Suffer him to, co to collect at great cost the worthless firsts of ephemeral nobodies. Mayest thou consign him to the quatrain tertian and daily fevers to war and wrestle with him until they snatch away his very soul. Suffer that all his ALSs and inscriptions shall be forgeries. Suffer his rare items to become drugs on the market. Suffer his unique copies to be stolen, his private press books, his limited editions, ridiculous though such things be, and books with highfalutin colophons and printer's notes such as this, to be destroyed by fire. And, O oh, proud and lovely Proserpina, may he be condemned during the whole of his miserable life while awaiting thy dark and dire ministrations to consort only with people who are dull. That's marvelous. That's the end. First part of it, you can't see it. Numerals, one of the three on vellum. One of our little treasures. Now, this is a wonderful book. This is a very early effort on the part of uh, the Roy Crofters. Uh, this is this is the ugliest book I think I've ever seen, and I bought it solely on that ground. It's almost the worst piece of printing I've ever seen. It's truly low, as you'll see. That's the good page. And here they have it almost right. Note, note, the page numbers. <laughs> I just, I, I couldn't believe it when I saw that. Isn't that marvelous? You can see that. That just, just terrific, just terrific. And it says here, done after the manner of the early Venetian. <laughs> they're probably they're all twirling in their graves at that. They did get better. They did get better. And there's a 1904 on Japan vellum. I think that's very attractive. And of course, Dard Hunter got involved and did some truly memorable work. I was afraid of that. <laughs> the slides cut out of the sequence. That's the title. That's the, um, the title page for that book. And I have a couple of other examples of it. That's my favorite. Isn't that terrific and subtle? The olive colored and the black. That's, that is 
That's truly imaginative. That's excellent printing, excellent design. There's the infamous X equals X. He called that a book. Can you imagine? And there's the, the, there's the first part of words. And you see the, the pages do get larger as they fold back on each other. It's very artful. I mean, it's very clever and all that. But is it a book? A book in full aluminum, Flatland, produced by the Orion Press. I will say about Flatland, although it's, uh, it's uh, bound in that peculiar aluminum box, uh, the printing is superb in it and the arrangement of the typography is masterful, as you'll see. Very, very difficult and very clever. And that's the last page of text, and they were able to so artfully contrive the text to come out that way that they were able to play with that wonderful shape and end the book that way. You try to publish a whole book and come out with the text ending, that, that is, that's a, a, an amazing tour de force to be able to get the text to come out that way. Brilliantly done. One of my favorite uh, questionable books, this is the questionable section starting with X equals X, the, the books that I have trouble with. Uh, Let's see, I've got to find this one. This is Confracti Mundi Rudera, published in 1975 by the Paul Truen Press. Very few words, but I like it. Uh, Francis Butler and Alastair Johnson are the, are the printers. Uh, Francis Butler at that time had a fabric factory that she could play with. She owned a fabric factory. The title page. Uh, it's a rather large book and it's printed from magnesium plates. And you can see that's the larger image that the uh, fabric uh, pattern comes from. And can you see in the, in the uh, blank square, it's not quite blank, there's a small poem printed beneath the top of it. So you can see through it if you're holding the book in your hands. And my favorite double page spread from the book. Is that amusing to anybody? I, I, I was hysterical the first time I saw that. Sutton who? And that's the um, marvelous, um, this is called Occult uh, Psychogenic Misfeasance. Um, this is um, one of ten copies of the second edition. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know you'd love that. Uh, color Xerox, uh, laminated and uh, artfully created with pinking shears. I, I don't know. I, uh, as a small procedural matter, of course, of course at USF we never mark up our press books in any kind of way. We put acid-free slips with the call number in them, and that's how we retrieve them. On this book, I said, go ahead and stamp it up. They took a, you know, a little adhesive label and put the number on it. It can't hurt that. And this is a uh, book by another printer. Oh. Sorry, got that upside down. But you get the basic, it doesn't really matter, does it? You get the basic idea. That is the text. That, that was the title page. Very good, thank you. That's it, it goes on for several more folds, but that's the book that she wanted me to buy for $75. Shelley Hoyt, oh, sorry, Terry. 
goes sideways. It's supposed to go sideways. What's irritating is when printers, uh, respectable printers, then go off the deep end from time to time. This is the very respectable Wesley Tanner at the Arif Press. And uh, he got involved with a young lady by the name of Heidi Kyle. She does this kind of work. And he thought it was just terrific. And he wouldn't rest until he produced a Heidi Kyle-esque book. And uh, he still has lapses from time to time. That's the title page. It, it's hiding, it hides under the first flaps. Oops. No, I don't want that one yet. Bound in full shower cap, yeah. Okay, you can't see it too well anyhow. But the flaps come down when you open This is a very important book. This is a book that aids the text again brings it more fully alive to have it printed correctly. And of course we have the um, dramatic effect, uh, as you'll see here. Here we have um, the smallest poem in the book, and uh, uh, backed by another small one. The ink on the other side is not show-through. That's additional ink, which he put on by printing the page front and back at the same time. Uh, through a complicated process he calls skip feeding. So that's additional ink. So you can see the see-through on the next page, can't you? That's the trouble he was having with this page. And so he, he ter turned a defect into an asset by enhancing that quality in the book. A very controversial, very famous book. There were 100 copies done, only 80 for sale uh, at $250. It now sells for about 2500 And the title page. Robinson Jeffers built a stone house and a tower on the Carmel Beach. That's depicted. And Phaedrus by Jack Stoffacher. The box and the chemise and the book uh, lying on the open chemise. That's all there is to the title page. Very dramatic work. In the 2,000 years of reproducing the text of Plato, this is the first time ever that the text was printed in that way so that half the dialogue is on one side and the other speaker is on the other side. The first time. That's thoughtful imagination, enhancing the text. That's, again, what fine printing is all about. And I think even Andy Hoyam's um, Moby Dick is a very successful book in many ways with its hundred wood engravings by Barry Moser. I think that's a brilliant first page. Calm Ishmael, isn't that terrific? It's hard to beat that. And hard to beat the whale page, too. The binding. The binding for the Chilonidae Press, uh, The Raven by Poe. Uh, wonderfully uh, marbled paper boards. Title page. And a full page of text. This is a wonderful book do done by Jillian Haven of the Isis Press. 
she's moved back to Massachusetts recently. This is, these are her own wood engravings, and that's Noah uh, waiting out the flood. The, it's, a, it's a very short book. It's just the, the flood, and it has a, a, an engraving on every page, wood engraving by her. I think that's a marvelous psychological study of Moses, of Noah, sorry. I think that's just terrific. And too little known, uh, that's one of the reasons only 40 copies were done. She's not nearly well enough known. And the wonderful raw silk binding and the box done by the Thistle Press for that book. This is the uh, Red Osier Press, uh, Father Abraham. Now we're getting into books that I have found of interest and want to share with you as being particularly attractive or nice things. And a double page spread from Father Abraham. Sorry, it's a little light, but it's a beautiful book. The Pyracantha Press in Tempe, Arizona, produces a very interesting edition of Venus and Adonis on uh, handmade paper built uh, made to their specifications, uh, uh, knobby and grayish, uh, so they thought it would match the uh, paper that was in the first edition. And interesting, um, interesting total effect. I think very successful. But the Pyrocantha Press is just beginning to be known. This is um, uh, Marjorie Cantor, who has just moved to the Minnesota Center for Book Arts. Oops, sorry. That's the first page of the poem. This is the binding for, the, for Adrian Wilson's new book, uh, In Medias Res, the, a poem by William Everson. But Everson is too ill now to print himself, so he asked his friends, the Wilsons, to print it. And that's the title page of it. And a double page spread. Some wonderful uh, books by um, the Ive Street Press, uh, Barbara Cash. Uh, wonderful, you can just tell by the outside what uh, interesting and, and pleasant books they are. And that's Meet Me in the Better Land, uh, opened. press uh, work done by Richard Gabriel Rummins at the University of Alabama. He has four or five press names down there. Gorgas Oak is one of them. Beautiful little colophon in that book. And the cover. And the cover for Parallel Editions, Return and Other Poems, another Alabama press, uh, another uh, Richard Gabriel Rummins effort with the Greek and English, I think very nicely juxtaposed. Two more books from Alabama. Symposium Press and the Muse Press. There's a double page spread from the Muse Press. This is the Turkey Press of Santa Barbara, which isn't very well known yet. Uh, this is uh, James Lachlan, uh, a book of poems. Made on uh, handmade paper at the press. You can see, you can really see the, the wonderful knobby quality of that paper. And beautifully printed. 
The Good Book Press is a brand new press in Santa Cruz. I think this is beautiful handmade paper. All the paper in this book they made at the press. That's the title page. It has a title page, a full page illustration, and a colophon, and that's it. I hate the illustration, but I think that's a wonderful page. And Walter Hamity, we can't neglect. This is his 100th book. second book, probably the most important book of the press. And there's the catalog of two decades of his work that was done recently. And the Iguana Press is, I think, fairly clearly a disciple. Look a little familiar? <laughs> Uh, the Yellow Barn is a brand new press that is emerging in Iowa, a, 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 a double edition, co-published edition. You want to put on the last seven slides? Tracy Davis, uh, who got uh, early training at um, uh, Logan Elm Press in Ohio, and this was done there as one of her projects. She has since moved to California and graduated uh, with the first graduating class from the uh, Book Arts program at Mills College. And she's kept the name Nomad Press. This also was done at uh, Ohio. And these are uh, the second book. The, the taller one is one she did in California. That's the cover to the Haikai book. Very interesting um, gelatin um, inserts. Gordon Getty even gets into the picture. He uh, wanted some poems privately printed and hired uh, our friend Harold Berliner to print this book in 150 copies for him. He certainly could afford it. And there's uh, one of the pages from the book. It's the slide. The book is not dirty. The slide is. Sorry. Very interesting book. The Clorino Press. Uh, Jeanette Olander, who's now in Providence, Rhode Island, again got her uh, training at the uh, Logan Elm Press. A double page spread from that book. Very interesting book. you probably won't see again, printed by uh, Peter Koch in San Francisco, a strictly uh, private press, uh, a privately printed edition of, of 30 copies. Uh, I don't think even that the, uh, the, the people who had it done know that this copy escaped, uh, but I had to have a copy for our archive. That's the uh, spine of the book. And an inside picture.
Well, you made it through. Thank you very much for paying attention to all those slides. In conclusion, I would say that fine press collection is a rewarding, if a confusing, uh, occupation from time to time. Thank you very much. Are there any questions? I'll be glad to... Uh, oh, don't I get questions? All right. I won't argue. I can read it. What do you 